there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Episode 43, 44 of the podcast. Episode 44. I had to check myself. The reason I said 43 is because I just released episode 43 today. I'm recording this on Monday, the intro on Monday, which is a little bit earlier than I normally would record an intro. Well, a lot earlier because I normally don't do it until the Sunday before. But I'm recording this one because it uh, self-indulgently is my birthday uh, this week coming and I'm having a party on Saturday night and on Sunday I don't feel that my voice could be up for recording or or my mind could be up for talking. So decided to do it on Monday, get it all wrapped up in a nice bundle and have it ready to go for Monday morning because you got to be frequent and consistent I'm learning with your podcasts because some of you actually subscribe and listen on a Monday and maybe even look forward to it. So got to keep that up from my side. Okay, and then this one, I'll get straight into it. It's Councillor Andrew Montague. So the Friday Five came out and hopefully you've heard a little snippet in what we talk about. Just to go into a bit more detail, I was connected to Andrew through a mutual friend, Pat Lucy, previous guest, and somebody that has connected me with a few of my 44 so far guests on the podcast. And I have to say it was really, really enjoyable to talk with Andrew to get an insight into his political career and career before that. What was very interesting was that Andrew only got into officially into politics in the early 2000s and very quickly got elected to the council in the Finglas area. From there he became Lord Mayor a number of years later and also the the Dublin bike scheme was very much his baby, something he pushed from the get-go of his journey through the, the political landscape in Dublin. And it became a huge success, as you'll hear in more detail. During the hour-long conversation, I learn a lot about what drives Andrew and talk about his background growing up in Dublin. Um, he's both his parents were from, from, from Ulster, uh, which was very interesting. And this had a lot to do with his interest in, in politics from a young age. His brother was also in politics. Obviously, being Lord Mayor of Dublin, I was fascinated about what that entailed, how he got elected into that position. And it was really interesting year from from what Andrew explains certainly maybe a year wasn't long enough but it certainly was 24-7 full on as well it's a really good one it was one I think I said at the start first politician I wouldn't be massively in the know when it comes to politics so I was learning a lot during the conversation which helped and I think it flowed quite well as always towards the end of the podcast we get into more details around what makes Andrew productive, what makes him driven, how he keeps the energy levels up, how he deals with distractions, the likes of social media, talk a bit about mindfulness and meditation and exercise. I think what's brilliant about the show, and I'm not saying it from my perspective, is that it gets into those little nuggets of information that all of these people have that seems to be the part of the show that I get the most feedback on and where people get the most learning. So yeah, I really hope you enjoy the show with Andrew. I will put all the show notes into the episode page as always. 
and I hope it really has a, a good response and I hope that I'm physically able to launch this episode on, on Monday which I'm sure I will because I'll be look af- looking after myself after a busy weekend and the show must go on so no no weekends off uh, birthday or not so I'll leave it there enjoy and as always please subscribe please like please share hit me up on Twitter or all those other good social networks and Have a great week. Thanks so much. Good luck. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on to the show. I'm delighted to be on it and uh, chuffed to be asked, to be honest. <laughs> more, more delighted to, to have somebody of your stature come on. Um, I, I, uh, I Again, I will pass um, Lucia a thank you for making the connection. And uh, when he did, I was very struck by your your profile when I when I, I read into it, and I have to say it's, you are the first politician uh, and certainly the first Lord Mayor I have on on the show. So so a couple more firsts for it. Um, politics, right? So I'd love to just get a, a an understanding maybe of where your interest or passion for politics came from, uh, where that originated, and maybe even talk about that in, in your early stages of, of growing up, perhaps, if it was part of that. Yeah, I think it was. I think my parents, not so much interested in politics as such, but were avid watchers of the news. Um, my parents are both from Ulster, but either sides of the border. So my dad's from Tyrone and my mother's from Monaghan. So we watched, I suppose I grew up in the 70s and 80s and uh, violence in the Northern, Northern Ireland was dominating politics. And certainly the politics my family would have been watching. Uh, we watched the Northern Ireland news predominantly and uh, mm. I suppose the Irish news too, but uh, we always watched both. And uh, so I was very interested in in what happened in the North and very much in favor of peace, in favor of any of the dialogue that happened, the peace processes that went through. But I suppose in those times, it would have been the SDLP I would have been uh, interested in and supporting. And uh, still think we owe a huge debt to people like uh, John Hume and Seamus Mallon and Mark Durkin, Breed Rogers. You know, they did an enormous uh, amount of good for Ireland, but under huge pressure. And, you know, people forget like people like... Uh, Austin Curry. I met Austin Curry actually one day. I actually knocked on his door one night by hmm. complete accident. And I knocked on his door about 12.30 at night uh, looking for directions. And he graciously came out and gave me directions. And uh, a few months later, he ran for the presidents here. Right. And he talked about how they felt under siege and how the slightest noise would have them all petrified and awake and I had called to his door at half twelve at night mm. but his wife the uh, UVF had broken in and uh, you know had carved UVF on his wife's chest and um, and that's why they felt as they were under attack from the uh, IRA and they were under attack from loyalists and they were so brave to stand up for what they believed and what was right and I have a huge admiration for them Wow and what part whereabouts exactly was, was that where, when you were growing up uh, I well, I grew up in Dublin. Oh, you grew uh, up in Dublin, all right. But, okay, but just with my parents being from the north, and yeah. they stayed a huge interest. And we went up and down. We went, we visited a lot. So I'd have been going across the border. There was times where it might take you two or three hours to cross the border. Mm. Uh, just being aware of life in Northern Ireland from being on holidays there frequently, uh, what it was like. Uh, I did a little bit of work up there. I, I, I first qualified from co- college. I did veterinary medicine, okay. and I worked for a year in Cavan, but uh, it was. We were based in Cavendown, but we went into Fermanagh. We went across the border. I was in, you know, there's a lot of roads there along Clonus and between Monaghan and Cavan mm-hmm. uh, that you're kind of going back and forth 
uh, across the border and farms spanned the border. And uh, so people's lives were hugely impacted by the border. And uh, I was working there before the peace process had, you know, before the first ceasefires. So um, it was really eye opening to see what was going on. Hmm. And when was your first kind of foyer into the whole world of politics? And I think when we talked offline, you talked more maybe about the community element of it. Yeah, I suppose. Well, I um, what got me into politics uh, specifically into the Labour Party was my brother. My older brother was a member and he's seven years older than me and he was in college and he was uh, campaigning for the Labour Party in the 1982 general election and he brought me along and I was dropping leaflets. So that was my first introduction. Okay. And I was always very interested and I always turned up at elections. And um, but I um, but I didn't ever join the party until we had a bad election in uh, 2002 and I thought an undeserved bad election. I thought we had a very good platform and, you know, deserved to get better results. And I thought, well, there's no point kind of sitting around moping about it. I had to get involved and put my mm-hmm. shoulder to the wheel. So I joined the party then. But it was always very interested in, I, I live in Ballymun. I didn't grow up here. I grew up in Santry, which is the na- neighboring uh, neighborhood, I suppose. But yeah. I lived here for the last 15 years. I was very involved in the community here. And so when there was an opportunity to run in the local elections to represent both uh, Santry, where I grew up, and Ballymun, it was it was great opportunity. And uh, I ran then in 2004 and got elected. Very good. So that was your, your first kind of connection in directly in. I, I you know, this was one of the things I was thinking about asking and, and going going looking back on when I was growing up. I, I would probably had had a fear maybe of of even stepping into the world of politics and didn't know that much about it. And the one thing that stood out for me is seeing people in politics that you would have always been maybe front and center and on front of congregations of people and and really driving it and that I suppose would have been something that uh, would have deterred me a little bit from a kind of a confidence perspective was that anything that resonates with you or were you always well that that is no that is hard that's a hard aspect of it Um, and uh, you know um, you have to be prepared to meet people and talk to people but I, I suppose I you know I'm reasonably good at talking to people in a one to one situation mm-hmm. and I had gotten used to knocking on doors uh, for other people and I kind of learned a few things well one of the really interesting things for me was just for years I've been canvassing for others and you kind of have a rote and you knock on the door I'm here for yeah. Roisin Shortall was the local TD I'm here for Roisin Shortall I uh, hope you'll give her a vote and generally people wouldn't engage too much mm. and I kind of changed my tack and started saying, I'm here with Roisin Shortall, and I wonder, what do you think are the important issues in the area? Hmm. People love that. Yeah. They want to talk. And the doors would just swing wide open instead of close and shut. People were dying to talk to you. And you, it's it's actually a, a really um, insightful thing to be able to go and talk to people and knock on their door and say, well, what's, what is it with you? What's, what's your issues? Hmm. You, you just hear so much and you learn so much. It's one of the good things about Irish politics that's often overlooked said anybody who gets elected has to do that has to knock on thousands of doors and Mm. meet thousands of people on a one-to-one basis and it's eye-opening you just learn so much uh you know you hear the situations the the life stories that people are living with and the struggles that they have and um you know you hope you can help them yeah it strikes me as well though you're mentioning knocking on the door and, and talking a little bit, but I think what you were doing was listening and the, the, exactly. the key element of, of that communication medium, I suppose, is all about listening and people open up more when, when you're maybe open to, to doing that. Yeah, I think that I think that probably successful politicians probably 
that happens by intuition or something and they're the ones who are successful because they do that. I think if you're going to go there and lecture people, you know, the door after door will be shut in your face. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about meeting people and listening to what their issues are and tuning in to what those issues are and then trying to respond as best you can uh, to what those issues are. Yeah, no, it sounds sounds like uh, it, it sounds like you hit off hit the ground very much running in uh, in your career in in politics. So two thousand and two was it the first elections? Two thousand and two, I yeah. I joined the party, and then in two thousand and four, the local elections were coming up, and so I a few people said to me, "You should put your name forward for that." And mm. thankfully, I was selected, and ran, and was successful in my first elections in the local elections in two thousand and four. Excellent. And it was around then you proposed the, the Dublin bike scheme, which I suppose is yeah. very much prominent in your career so far. Yeah, well, I was very interested. I was cycling in Dublin hmm. and uh, I had, uh, you know, been doing that for a few years. Didn't cycle all my life, but I'd been cycling for three or four years at that stage. And there was, some things were really awkward and difficult about cycling in Dublin. And just on holidays, I had been to uh, Holland and just saw how wonderful it could be if it was done right. Mm. So I kind of came back with the excitement and enthusiasm of a convert to right. say, well, look, we can do an awful lot more. There's so much can be done mm. uh, for cycling. And one of the things that I came across, I just read a lot. One of the things that I came across was that they had a, a free bike scheme in Copenhagen and they had tried it a number of times and failed a number of times, but they kept trying again and they fine-tuned it and refined it and they eventually got it working. And I thought, that would work for us. They've mm. already ironed out all the problems. Uh, why not just, you know, take that template and run with it? Yeah. So I proposed that in 2004 and it was at a time where cycling wasn't uh, very popular, wasn't in vogue. In fact, it had it was... 2004 was the, uh, you know, the, the lowest point in cycling in Dublin's history. Right. It had probably fallen for about 30, 40 or 50 years in a row. We have the figures from the mid 80s, but you can be sure that since the 50s and 60s it had fallen dramatically. But mm. every year since about 1985 to 2004, which is, uh, what's that? That's 20 years. It had fallen year after year, the number of people cycling into Dublin. And so I proposed the Dublin bikes and in that context. People were very cynical about it. Uh, they thought this would never work, that all the bikes would be stolen. But I knew that that's what the problem was in Copenhagen. All their bikes were stolen in Copenhagen. Right but they had sorted out the problems. They had worked out how to get around it. So that's why I was confident that that wouldn't be an issue here in Dublin. And thankfully, that's the way it worked out. In our first year, we had how many bikes that we got at the launch? Uh, we had 500 bikes when we launched and we uh, didn't have a single bike stolen in the first year. And on typically, and since then, it's about one bike a year is stolen. Wow. So it's been a huge success from that point of view. But... Uh, but also the number of people who bought into it and, and joined the scheme and the success it's had. It's been, it's quite phenomenal, really. Yeah, no, it's, it's brilliant. And I think you, you won, was it in, I'm just reading, it was in 2009, it was one of the most successful, um, it was it was launched in two, 2009 and, and since launched then it became, became yeah. so successful. You mentioned some of the oppositions you had for, for it in the early stages. Do certain things stick out when you look back and reflect on what those oppositions were and how you... I suppose, approached uh, overcoming that? 
Yeah, well, I suppose the biggest fear people had, there was a great cartoon that Martin Turner did in the Irish Times uh, where he talked about, uh, I was talking about the bike scheme and he said, oh, so Dublin's going to get two new ways to cross the Liffey. One will be on the bikes over the Liffey and the other will be to walk across the Liffey on the bikes in the Liffey. So so that was the kind of, that was the people's biggest fear. But Mm. showing that, you know, people also said, oh, it's all very well on the continent. They're all honest over there, but they're dishonest in Dublin. Mm. But that wasn't true at all. They they had all of their bikes stolen. <laughs> they lost them all within 24 hours oh. when they first started. But they were very persistent and they came back two or three years in a row and finally ironed out the kinks. So being able to show, look, they have exactly the same problems. And here's the simple things that they're doing uh, to overcome those. And we were able to use those ideas and successfully launch here. Excellent. And then it, I guess it's, it's rolled out here in Cork. Now it's, it's yes. probably rolled out in lots of other parts of It's in of Limerick Ireland. and Galway uh, at the moment. And uh, But I, I would really like to see them expanded more in those cities and in Dublin. Like we had, for example, uh, roughly we get about 5 million trips a year on Dublin bikes. The Lewis in Dublin gets about 10 million trips a year. Mm. So we've spent over a billion euros on the Lewis. And Dublin bikes has more or less cost nothing for the state. You know, four or five million compared to over a billion investment at the Lewis. And we're getting, you know, you know, only about, we, we get half the journeys they get. Hmm. It's, it's amazing statistics. All right. Um, just in the, I suppose, the, the proposal you put together for Dublin Bikes, what did you, I suppose this is such a, probably a big initiative that you, you hadn't had done before. How did you approach it from a planning perspective? And was there techniques or, or tactics that you applied to, to kind of put it all together? Yeah, I suppose one of the things I think we talked about earlier on was um, was I came on determined to tr- improve cycling mm. and uh, on the council. And now I have lots of other things I'm interested in as well, but this was one area that I wanted to make some progress on. And what I found worked very well, it was like I might have had 10 ideas on how we could improve cycling and I would meet opposition to this one and to that one. People say, oh, you could never do that. And I'd say, fine. Well, what about this? And people say, well, maybe we could do that. And I'd push any open door I got. Mm-hmm. So there was a bit of an opening. I was talking about this free bike scheme for a number of years, pushing the idea and there were, you know, a lot of cynicism about it. But then an opportunity came along where the council were looking uh, to raise some extra funding for the council. And they came up with this idea of uh, putting up more advertising around the place that the council would own because most the count- most of the advertising in Dublin was owned privately and the council were earning no money from it. So they thought, well, look, we can put up our own advertising and start making a bit of money. So that went out for tender. And one of the tenders was that in return for this advertising uh, structures around the city that we would – that one of the companies, JC Deco, as it were, uh, would provide a free bike scheme. So that was my opening. That was my chance to say, yes, here's a great opportunity. This is how we could do it. And that's the the, the bid that we went for. So it kind of just tied in with what I was looking for. So I think, in, you know, to get success in something, you don't have to have a specific route set out. You just have an idea. I want to go from here to there and I can go around to the right a bit or I can go to the left a bit. But as long as I know where I want to go. So when an opportunity came up to get a Dublin bike scheme in and I'd been talking about it already for three or four years, this was the perfect opportunity. And so I uh, strongly supported this idea of the advertising for the bikes and was able to get it over the line. Yeah, excellent. And I think, uh, as you said, you know, planting the seed and having the vision is uh is massively important. Did you find as it started to gain momentum, others 
jumped on to the, the bandwagon Absolutely. and supported yes. you. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it was. And it was, I suppose, it's, it helped uh, in other things then later on because I find that on the council that people then would look to me as somebody who can speak with authority on transport in general. Mm. And so that there was more controversial things that I proposed at different stages on the council and people just used to, you know, look to me and say, yeah, well, look, if that's, if Andrew thinks that's the right thing to be doing, let's go for it. So uh, it was uh, a great boost to my uh, authority to get other things done and my ability to get other things done on the council. Then it kind of brought me a bit of... um, prestige maybe or yeah. you know people thought well he knows a little bit about what he's talking about mm. credibility i would say for sure credibility is the word yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah and you entering politics at at that stage you know compared to maybe other members in in the area that have been in it since they were young fina fall or young fina gale or those numbers of years did did that a new kid on the block sort of thing come in uh, i suppose did you have to win everybody over in that environment or was there any kind of challenges uh, around that what worked well for me was that uh, kevin humphreys was the leader of the labor group at the time and he's one of the best politicians i ever worked with but he um he whatever he saw something in me and thought he liked what i was talking about and he kind of garnered the votes that i needed to get things done and uh, we worked really well together. So uh, a lot of things that I was proposing, he would get the votes and he was good at getting b- votes across parties, which is something I, I do myself. I would uh, anything I, yeah, you get done on, on councils has to have cross party support. And I'd work very closely with colleagues in all the parties I, uh, and always have try and have good relations with people right across the board. And uh, that's that's a really important way of getting things done as well, you know, and mm-hmm. spread the credit out and things like that. Yeah. When you think about your career in politics so far, is there any major frustrations or, or I don't like to use failures in a way, but just things that really frustrate you that you see doesn't it doesn't have to be that way and you can look at ways to, to kind of make things smoother? Yeah, well, I, I suppose one of the things uh, about the way our politics is in Ireland is that um, in local politics, we have a huge say in the housing issue at the moment. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the people who vote in local elections tend to be people who tend to own their own homes. Uh, younger people don't tend to vote in local elections. Whatever about in general elections, they tend not to vote in, uh, in local elections. So the electorate of councillors are people who own their own homes. And people who own their own homes tend not to want to see anything being developed beside them. Hmm. Uh, and that, I think, is a huge barrier to dealing with our housing crisis uh, because councillors that uh, go against the wishes of uh, the the electorate will not be councillors for very long. Sure. And they'll have no say whatsoever. So we have, that's quite a problem um, because I've seen here in Dublin schemes just being cut back, uh, reduced in its um, their ambitions. You know, the number of houses might be cut in half from what they could be mm. because of local opposition. And that's a real frustration. How do, how do you address it or what, what approaches are you taking to try and overcome that? Well, one of the things is just working with other councillors and like I did did a master's in planning, just finished a master's in planning. I I chair the planning committee and since I was selected or elected to be chair of the planning committee, I went off and did a master's. And um, so having that credibility I've earned in other spheres then again and having a master's under my belt in in planning helps persuade other councillors that, look, this is the way we need to do things. And we've got to think about what's right for the long term 
instead of just the short term. And hopefully you can bring enough people along. But it, it's quite a challenge. Uh, I think maybe some of our, um, I think maybe some of the national decision making has to take that into account and kind of maybe uh, set down rules that would uh, prevent that from happening. Cool. And I think on that as well, one of the things that stands out as a as a councillor, you don't effectively have huge power. And mm-hmm. how have you used those kind of influencing skills or negotiating skills to to get things done? Is there is there certain things that you think you've developed over time or, or were maybe innate skills that uh, help you be successful in that area? Yeah, I think that what's really interesting is that uh, legally and technically councillors' powers are quite limited. Mm. But I think our influence is way beyond our technical powers and we're involved in community groups and people look to us to take responsibility. So I think that that people don't take advantage of that often enough. And uh, one of the things that uh, that I'm really interested in, I've volunteered as the chair of the Ballymun Drugs Task Force for almost 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so working with people who are really on the margins uh, is quite challenging, but also very rewarding in what can be done. But you, you build up relationships then with, uh, say for example, the local superintendent. Now, I have no powers to mandate this local guard or superintendent of what to do, but I built up a very strong relationship with him. And we set out to see, well, what could we do to address crime in our area? And uh, we started looking at what was happening in other countries and how we could use the best evidence from other countries and what would work in a situation like Ballymun. And we set up a program that was innovative and new, and uh, it's called Strive Ballymun. And uh, it's a program where we've targeted the 20 most prolific offenders in the area. And what we're trying to do is to change their way of life and pull them out of crime and, you know, bring them back into community. So we offer them best services we can and try and get them training for uh, job opportunities and uh, make sure that they can get, if, for example, a, a reasonable amount of them would have addiction problems, so we try and get addiction treatment for them. But it's conditional that, you know, that their behavior improves. And if their behavior doesn't improve, well, then we try and use the justice system to uh, to come down heavy on them, I suppose, mm. uh, to put it bluntly. And so we managed to get the probation service. I had... I had been, as we mentioned earlier on, I was Lord Mayor of Dublin and I knew the head of the Probation Service of Ireland and I sent him an email and said, look, we're interested in starting up this scheme based on what they're doing in Bristol in the UK. And he said he thought that was really interesting because he said he was looking at the same scheme and so he was able to provide extra staffing for us. He was very interested in that as well. So there's something I have no mandate, no legal powers to do. But by working with the local superintendent and then having met the head of the probation service, I was able to get this program off the ground. And now there's uh, another maybe 10 communities doing the same thing as us. It's uh, now taken on at a national level and uh, it's working very well for us. Great. So it's, it's developing those connections and putting them to, to positive benefit, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. And so again, that doesn't, you don't require uh, the law to change things. You can get a lot done by working with people. So if you find people who are interested in changing things, because change is always difficult, but if you find somebody who's enthusiastic, who wants to go down the evidence-based route, who wants to look at what's happening in other countries, what's the best uh, way of tackling with the issues we have, then you've got allies there that you can work with. Hmm. And people are very enthusiastic about that once you get it up and running. 
Yeah, no, it sounds like it. I'm struck, Andrew, by uh, like the the diversity in in the areas you're 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 tackling. Uh, yes, and it sounds like from from what you mentioned, be studying to be you know vet in your early years and just finished a master's in planning, learning and constant uh, information processing sounds like uh, a constant for you. How do you how do you approach taking all that information in and doing your research for? some of these challenges do you identify these challenges that crop up through your through your day-to-day and then go off and see look for solutions that that have happened and worked elsewhere yeah that's kind of i suppose i suppose i read a lot and um you know from a lot of it on the internet twitter picking up various things so i would be following people who would have have expertise and i'd have on the things that i encountered during our you know at our work so anything to do with housing anything to do with crime mm. anything to do with transport they're the things that the council would be uh, very involved with so I'm following these people and from time to time you come across a gem and say my goodness that would really help in our situation mm. and then you try and use the connections you've got or you know if you've got uh, ways in to get that done so that's that's kind of the way I've done it uh, I, I suppose always on the lookout for something that will help deal tackle the problems we've got Mm. Uh, and so those problems are being presented to me on a daily basis people are ringing me people I'm knocking on doors uh, people are emailing you and when you see something especially if it's evidence based I feel very strongly about that you know that there's got to be some research basis on it Mm. Um, you find some wherever you get it you you, you grab that and you run with it and if you can get some allies to work with you that's the best thing Mm. another thing that's coming up for me is it's interesting do you feel like you're an entrepreneur in some ways in in how you come up with an idea and run with it that you you don't need permission to go forward with this would that be a kind of a fair question to say that's i suppose that's an interesting observation i hadn't thought of it like that but yeah i do take ideas and run with them and uh i've been able to get a lot of things done uh through that kind of uh manner of dealing with the, the issues that arise yeah, because the reason I said is if if you're in a, a corporate environment or you know you there's some you're under certain boundaries and there's only certain ideas you can come up with and, and drive with. Right, and you're in in the real world and you're dealing with everyday challenges and uh, anything. You've got a lot of freedom. Uh, yeah. you, you were talking about being nervous of getting involved in politics. I, I really would encourage people to get involved. It is. Um, it is so rewarding to be involved in your community and to be able to tackle the issues mm. that you are like a lot of it. I'm facing the issues. So yeah. like it's the, it's the, some it's the stone in my shoe, you know, <laughs> it's irritating me. And like, yeah. if I can find a way, so I was cycling in Dublin, it was a pain. Uh, and I've tried to, you know, improve the situation. Um, and same with, you know, crime and antisocial behavior. I've been at the butt end of an awful lot of crime and, uh, really wanted to do something about it. And housing is an issue that's facing all of us. So, you know, it's a huge challenge. And so you want to, or I certainly want to know as much as I can. And that's why, I mean, I loved, I, I do love studying and research and uh, learning about things. And uh, um, and the master's was a great, the, the master's in Bolton Street uh, in Dublin Institute of Technology. Mm. And it was a taught master's. And I liked that rather than one piece of research say in a PhD that you might be four years focused on a very small aspect of, of mm. subject. A taught master's covered a wide variety of things from, you know, water infrastructure to housing to transport. Uh, it suited me anyway. I loved it. 
No, it sounds uh, it sounds really interesting, and as I said, it's a constant, uh, lifelong journey that I think that you're going through. I'd like to just briefly touch on the the Lord Mayor Dublin appointment. Just uh, how how did that come about? And a great accolade again, c- congratulations on that. One, how did it happen? And two, what were the benefits that it brought you in in your role? I suppose. Yeah. I uh, sometimes it's been in the right place at the right time and you need a lot of luck in politics. Okay. And um, and my actually, when I was elected in 2004 for the first time, uh, Labour were the biggest party on the council. Now, we didn't have a majority, but we were the biggest party and we were in, um, we were in a coalition with Fine Gael at the time. So there was going to be three Lord Mayors out over five years for the Labour Party and three Deputy Lord Mayors. And a number of people already had been deputy Lord Mayor. And so my very first, so I put my name forward and was selected as deputy Lord Mayor at my very first council meeting. <laughs> so I had been uh, deputy Lord Mayor. But a lot of that was because after we got the election, we had about a two week period where we had to negotiate a deal with the other parties. And uh, I mentioned Kevin Humphreys before, and he was asking, you know, who can attend the negotiations? Who's got ideas to put forward? And I was like, expecting everybody else to put their hands up but very few people did and I says well look mm. I'll put my hand up so I ended up being involved in the negotiations and a lot of my ideas went into the agreement the Dublin bikes for example and a few other ideas I had got into the agreement so it kind of became even though it was only two weeks later it was almost natural for me to be the choice for Deputy Lord Mayor because I had done so much work on getting this agreement with uh, Fine Gael at the time okay. and um, so I had been Deputy Lord Mayor so that was a start and I hope like to think I did a good job but it was probably the success of Dublin Bikes that uh, that helped me get to be Lord Mayor so again Dublin uh, Labour at that time were the biggest party on Dublin City Council and we had a number of Lord Mayors to, over the five years and so when I put my name forward I went was unopposed and uh, so I was elected uh, Lord Mayor of Dublin and was that a, is that a one or two year tenure? It's a one year position right. one year which is too short um, right. because it's it's an it's an amazing job um it's it's just such an exciting role but it's it's a really important job for dublin because the lord mayor of dublin is essentially the ambassador for dublin uh, uh he or she is the salesperson for dublin you're selling the city around the world you're welcoming people who come to visit dublin uh, you're also the champion of anything good that's going on in Dublin. So people, you go and celebrate successes in Dublin, you go and visit communities, whatever they're up to, uh, you celebrate that or you invite them into the mansion house uh, to celebrate whatever good is going on. Mm. So, um, but I found that I, I did a lot of traveling uh, around the world. Some of it, A lot of it was kind of pre-planned. It was for whoever was going to be Lord Mayor. Like, for example, Dublin is twinned with San Jose. So the Lord Mayor visits San Jose in California every year. Okay. So uh, I went out to San Jose. But I kind of, there was three or four trips were already planned. And I kind of requested that if I was going to travel halfway around the world, that we wouldn't just do one thing, mm. that I would visit other places. So Mexico had been pushing very hard that a Lord Mayor would visit and I said well if we're going to go to San Jose it's like two or three hours to Mexico City yeah. so I went there and we signed an agreement with Mexico City and that kind of opened up then a whole other series of events then that other Lord Mayors have followed and the Michael D. Higgins went out then following that and kind of opened up a whole series of other connections between Dublin and Mexico City and Mexico is one of the biggest economies uh, in the world mm-hmm. and uh, so that was uh, very positive. And uh, so, yeah, that's why I feel it's to 
one year is too short because I made a lot of connections with a lot of people all over the world. And I just feel at the end of the year, people are ringing up. I must ring that guy I met him. He was very good. And, you yeah. know, we, and I'm gone. You're gone. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, there. and especially it doesn't sound like it gives you much chance to, to plan your, your, you know, your two-year or three-year strategy of what you want to achieve in that role, it sounds like it's premeditated in some ways. To, to A lot to... of it is pre-planned and a lot of it is you're kind of like you get maybe 20 requests per day to attend something. So you can't do them all. So you have to pick and choose which ones you're going to do. Mm. But you're responding to the requests that come into you and it's much harder to be proactive. The, the one thing that I was proactive on was uh, the issue I was talking about earlier on was crime and trying to deal with a lot of crime in the city centre in Dublin and trying to deal with that, but crime right across the city. And it was through that that I made a lot of my connections that helped me then to, and a lot of the ideas that came up with that, I, I set up a Lord Mayor's Commission into crime and antisocial behaviour. And uh, that was the impetus for a lot of what I've been able to achieve in Ballymun then. Okay. And in that role, is it is a 24-7 type role? Do you abdicate your role on the council for that year then as well? Uh, you're, it's, it is very much 24-7 um, and it's 365. It's like seven days a week you're you're working. And myself and Sinead decided uh, we would take holidays just before we were Lord Mayor and we actually got married a week after uh, I was Lord Mayor, but we didn't take holidays for the year. Okay. So you only get to be Lord Mayor of Dublin once in your life. Sure, you know, you're sure. not going to be going off <laughs> taking weeks holidays. So um, yeah. So we didn't take any holidays for the year. And we worked at it and like at the end, you kind of stumble over the line like you're with exhaustion at the end of it all. Um, but it was an amazing year and you wouldn't trade it for anything. And uh, just the opportunities that it opened up uh, to see things, to see various places in the world, but also mostly about Dublin. And, you know, um, like the Lord Mayor's carriage was built at the same time as the carriage that Queen Diana got married off. Uh, and so it's like this two or three hundred year old golden carriage it's like something out of cinderella and oh. you travel in that in saint patrick's day and also uh, out to the rds for the horse show you go from the mansion house which is about three miles in this golden carriage <laughs> it's you know fairy tale stuff <laughs> hard, hard to go back to a reality after that i guess planning your wedding at the end of it was probably a good idea to continue on that kind of fairy tale sort of uh finish to it yes it did it did kind of uh, work well that when we went to cork on our honeymoon so uh, oh, there right. you go oh well then yeah. that's a great a real to it all. Yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> what does a typical day consist of now for for you andrew in in your current role and your current guys yeah well i uh, we have a young 18 month old baby uh joseph yeah. and uh so i mind joseph in the mornings and uh, tried to get as much, a little bit of work done, but it depends on whether, what mood Joseph is in. So sometimes I can get a bit of housework done. Uh, might be able to answer a few emails, but then I have the afternoons to try and organize my day and organize meetings. I chair a lot of committees. And so I'm lucky then because I set the times. So um, so I tend to try and have all my meetings in the afternoons and then deal with emails uh, and then once or twice a week, I go out and knock on doors uh, in the evenings or on Saturdays and meet the public. And uh, I get a lot of emails, a lot of phone calls. And um, so meetings, emails and phone calls will be the majority of my work. Okay. And then just as much reading as I can. And uh, like today, I was uh, I'm working in Labour Party group on our what our urban policies are going to be for the next few years. So looking at housing, looking at some of the things I was just talking about there, crime, yeah. transport, um, how how we're going to 
what our ideas are for that. And then later on in the afternoon, I was chairing a meeting of the planning committee in Dublin City Council where we were looking at the national planning framework, which is coming from just the final draft was released from the government and we were looking at it from, well, what are the impacts going to be in Dublin? And is there anything that we think should change in it that, you know, so that was a really interesting meeting and um, I enjoyed that. So it's a very interesting, you yeah. know, uh, varied topics that come up that you meant that you talked about a minute ago that's why i'd encourage people to get involved in it and you mentioned the entrepreneur idea yeah it's really exciting is that you can take which bits of the council that you're passionate about and run with them mm. i mean it could have been the arts it could be um transport it can be you know air quality some whatever it is that you're excited about that's the bit you can run with yeah. and you do have a lot of freedom and you, you know we're not tied by party whips at local council level mm. um you try and get things done you try and work with whoever you need to work with to get things done yeah no it sounds like really uh, exciting the, the variety certainly strikes me from somebody that likes to have a lot of variety in a role uh, definitely uh is, is interesting in the freedom piece that that's just the, the, the entrepreneurial thing that uh is is jumping jumping out because as you said if you're going after what you want to do that essentially is you know creating your own path in lots of ways is there i always talk to people when i manage people at work and whatnot that you know your role is if you're if you're enjoying it 60 or 70 percent at a time that's probably better than than normal you're, you're always going to have yes. to do a certain percentage of administrative work yeah, and, and whatnot is even when you're interested in something it's very easy to be distracted by something else so you do have to be very persistent and stick with something now it sounds like i've jumped from billy to jack but you know i chaired the cycling committee on dublin city council for 10 years the transport committee the full transport committee for five years and i'm you know do a full five years as the planning chair um you know, you have to like this strive program. Like I'm chair of the drugs mm. task force for almost 10 years. So things take time and things do move slowly. Maybe you asked about frustrations. Things do move slowly. And I suppose whatever it is, I, I I'm prepared to stick with things and have a good idea to work it through. Like the planning and strive took about three years before we got it up and running. Same Dublin bikes took about five or six years before we got it up and running from starting with a basic idea to getting it, the bikes rolled out. So things are very slow and I look at national politics and you see a minister is in position for 18 months. Mm. You think, well, what can you genuinely achieve in 18 months? It's very, very difficult. Mm. Um, and often people are getting credit for what somebody did, either the last minister or maybe two or three ministers ago. But you just have happen to be lucky and it comes to fruition when you're in the job and you might get to take credit for it. And the work you do, nobody might know it was you. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but yeah, persistence is very, uh, and sticking with a project, you know, and staying with it and uh, seeing it through to the end is very important. Yeah. My question next would be around your kind of core value set. And you've talked about freedom, maybe persistence and perseverance. They sound like ones that would probably fall into your uh, your value mix there. W would there be others that jump out or would those be correct? I suppose, yeah, no, that, but... Uh, I suppose uh, a sense of caring about your community and mm -hmm. caring about people, you know, listening to people, uh, taking on their concerns and, um, and you know, that interaction with people is, is always going to be important to politics and you have to be able to talk to people. But as you, as I was saying earlier on, but it's about listening to people and not, not talking at them and not talking down to them because you'll have a very short career if that's your attitude. 
Yeah. You mentioned as well, there've been a couple of folks that have been very supportive and helpful to you during your, your tenure and your career in politics so far. Influencers and mentors, is that that's something that ha- have, have been important? Is there anyone else that uh, jumps out? Um, well, I, I'd have to say, well, Sinead, my wife, is uh, also very involved in politics and very supportive and uh, um, and my family have been hugely important. And that's one of the key things that I see that in communities where there's a lot of disadvantages, that people don't have the supports that I've had throughout my life. Mm. Uh, family is so important. Uh, Sinead's very involved in the Labour Party. That's how we met each other. Jack O'Connor's the chair and Sinead and my wife is the deputy chair of the Labour Party. So she's deeply involved in uh in politics and cares about what I'm doing hmm. and uh, vice versa. And so that's that's very important. And my family, I talked about my brother, Patrick, who's been involved in the Labour Party long before ever I was. And uh, um, he's hugely supportive. And my parents who are still alive and still, I had a launch, I launched, I'm hoping to run, or I am the candidate to run for the next general election for the Labour Party for this area. It's okay. my first time running Excellent. in the general election. And I launched my campaign on Tuesday night and my mum and dad were there and a few of my brothers were there and Sinead, obviously. Excellent. And uh, so so uh, they've been huge for me. Okay, that sounds great. And, and that, that campaign is starting just last Tuesday. How, like, when when does that kind of potentially come to, to fruition? Well, I was uh, officially selected back in April, so I've been knocking on doors with that in mind okay. since April um, but I wanted to have an official launch so that other people would know that I'm the candidate and to try and get people to come along to the launch that might get involved in the campaign then so people who would support you they need to know you're out there and that you you know to, I'll be looking for help so um, so that was the, the the ambition of the launch I suppose to get as many people in a room as possible and to show them that it's possible for me to get elected because the Labour Party have had tough elections recently. Mm. But I think the I think I've a good chance, I'm in with a very good chance of getting elected and um and talk about why I want to get elected, uh what are the things that I care about. And um so that was the that was the okay. launch on Tuesday. And and the priorities that you are focusing on, obviously the ones you mentioned are, are probably still very much front okay. and centre. Housing, dealing with antisocial behaviour and crime. Um and I, for me, there's a people who are working at the bottom end, people who've left social welfare or might be going in and out of social welfare. How can we help them take up that job in the first place? And how can we help them keep that job? Mm. So you look at the recent budget, there was tax cuts. But if you're on a minimum wage, you didn't get a tax cut because you already don't pay any social welfare. So they were the one group who benefited nothing from the budget. Mm. They didn't get a tax cut. They didn't get a social welfare increase because they're not on social welfare. So they often feel really angry that they're always kind of left out. So I would like to see more being done in terms of like, say, childcare for people on low incomes. How do we smooth that path for them? How do we, you know, you lose your medical card when you take up a job. Uh, when you move from social welfare. So that's why I think, you know, free GP care for all your children would be something that could smooth the path for people. So that would be a key thing for me. People who are thinking about taking up a job or who have taken up a job, how do we help them stick with that and uh, mm. move in that direction? Because we have a huge problem in Ireland. We have one of the highest levels of uh, jobless families, you know, where there's nobody in a family. Even though our unemployment is low, we have a very concentrated level of unemployment in certain communities. And I want to break those, uh, break that cycle down as much yeah. as I can. 
I'm interested in in behavior and how you change behaviors. You know, talking about antisocial behavior and trying to break that cycle, and and just there about you know employment, getting people back into work. In your studies and research, have you f- dove into kind of patterns of behavior, how to actually yeah. change that? That, that yeah, I'd love to hear what your thoughts just are. Just read. Uh, Terrific book if anybody's interested in crime. Really accessible, really easy to read book by Tom Gash. Okay. Uh, it's called Criminals. And I forget what the subtitle is. I get I get that for the, the show notes anyway. Tom yeah. Gash, yeah, cool. And uh, his he has a really his thing about crime is that most crime is opportunistic. It's not pre planned. It's just people. You might have a certain uh, acceptance of crime, I suppose, but. Like say most burglaries, just it's somebody who might have a, uh, it'll just happen by they'll be just walking down the street and they'll see a back door open. So oh, I'll slip in there. Right. And uh, so it's taking away people's opportunities for crime is the best thing. And they'll if they don't have the option, they probably stay away from it. So for example, his great observation was that uh, car crime has dropped sixfold over the last fifteen or twenty years. And the main reason for that is that car alarms. Uh, and you know blocking systems are so sophisticated now that mm. to get around them you really need to work very hard right. um, and so most of that just casual oh there's a car that somebody forgot to lock most of that casual uh, car theft has stopped right. and the people who are doing it are, are quite sophisticated now but they're very much in the minority um, so it's taking away opportunity and that crime wasn't replaced by some other crime that just that was the end of that crime okay. once and that came about, that was really interesting because the car companies had the technology for years in advance, but they weren't interested in implementing it because they were happy enough for the odd car to be stolen and then somebody would have to come out and buy a new car. Mm. And it was the British government were quite smart on this. Uh, they kind of kicked it off and they were encouraging magazines like Which Magazine to talk about car safety and the chances of your car. They had done the research to show these cars are safer than other cars, mm-hmm. cars by brand X were safer than brand Y. And they got the consumer magazines to start talking about that. And right. then suddenly people were very interested and they wanted to buy the safer cars. Mm. And then the car companies had to roll in sure. and start providing them. And that really put an end to car theft. And like we all remember joyriding was a massive thing in the 80s. or so Those of us old enough to remember, just completely gone. Yeah. It's not an issue anymore. Okay. And so say there's a few things that are happening in that I see a lot in communities that I, that um, like we've moved away from using prison as a punishment. And for lots of things, that's absolutely right. Punishment, prison was totally inappropriate punishment. So for example, big thing in my community at the moment is that there's people wandering around with uh, stereos that are so big that they have to pull them along on trolleys. Wow. And you can imagine the noise that that makes. Right. Now, if they wander past your house once every half an hour, that's pretty bad. Yeah. But if they have to stop outside your house mm. uh, and stay there for the night, or stay there every night for six months and party till three or four in the morning, you can imagine how difficult that makes your life. Of course. Now, if a 15-year-old is doing that, you're not going to send them to prison. Mm. And so effectively what's happened is that we're given an open invitation, do whatever you like because we're not going to do anything about it. Now, I'm not advocating prison for that, but what I would suggest is that the guards should just take the stereo off them. And sometimes they do. But if the parents go back down to the station the next day, the guards have a duty, they have to give it back. Right. But I would change things around and say that somebody would have to, in order to get it back, would have to go before a magistrate and demonstrate that this will never happen again. Mm. So a simple, you know, nobody's getting prison sentence, nobody's getting a criminal record. Just take the stereo off them 
and they won't be playing that loud music anymore. Interesting. So that takes the opportunity away. And at the moment, we have an open invite mm. to that kind of behavior. It's like, do whatever you want. We're going to do absolutely nothing about it. Yeah, no, that's that's a very interesting angle on, on how potentially to, to change those behaviours. And that's a good good recommendation on the book. I'll, I'll definitely add that to the ever-growing list of recommendations I get from these episodes. There's uh, so many good things to, to read out there. Change track a little bit, and I think it was something we talked about in uh, in our offline conversation around time management and productivity and how you actually get things done so in the course of your day you probably need to achieve a lot on an ongoing basis how yeah. how do you approach getting things done and uh keeping focus well i uh, keeping focus i think is really interesting and when i've got such a short window to get things done mm. uh, i have to be very focused uh, especially since uh, joseph has come along um yeah, I uh, have read a lot of books about it, and uh, one of the things, like I, I have virtually no notifications coming through to me. Uh, phone calls, yes, and uh, but email, I have no not- notifications for email, so I tackle my emails once a day in a forty-five minute, okay. you know, attack, as it were, yeah. and try and get through them. And I use, I've got some software that kind of filters out a lot of the emails that maybe aren't as important so anything that's coming that's a circular or anything that's coming from you know um advertising or whatever like that gets put into a different email box so i just have the in my inbox hopefully are just the core emails that people that are specifically emailing me that are looking for an answer so hopefully i can get them done in a you know in a 45 minute period and um so the other thing is I don't have television. I don't watch TV. Mm-hmm. Um, I do watch Netflix, and so we might watch three or four programs a week. Yeah, but it's not six hours of television a night, so uh, mm. that frees up a fair bit of time. One thing we talked about, which I find very interesting, like I listen to a lot of podcasts. I don't actually listen to the radio anymore. I listen to a huge amount of podcasts now. Yeah. Some of them are Irish. Uh, I love Sean O'Rourke. Uh, I listen to your podcast, um, and uh, but. One we we talked before about focus, and if you're thinking about a big issue, say for example, I had that launch on Tuesday night, and I wanted to give a speech at it, and I had a lot of ideas that I wanted to think about. Mm. If I'm listening to podcasts, I'm not giving my brain the chance to ruminate on those things. You need to have a almost be bored. You yeah. need to have nothing on your mind. Doing the washing up without listening to a podcast, or taking Joseph for a walk, and not, you know, again, not listening to music or a podcast is mm. what you. It allows your brain the time to think about these things and to go over the ideas in your head and formulate something something uh, constructive. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing my master's, I would try and spend, you would read, but you also need to have time doing nothing with no distractions. And we're very easily distracted, you know, with our phones, with Twitter, with Facebook. I don't do Facebook. That's another thing. I avoid Facebook. <laughs> I do a bit of Twitter right. and I find I go through bouts and I try to av- avoid it, but you know, you get addicted to retweets mm. and people who are following you and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, it's very addictive. So I try and avoid it. Um, although I, I, I'm kind of conflicted because I learn so much mm. from Twitter and from podcasts. But I, my, your brain needs time um, to think. And uh, I go to the gym. I do weightlifting and I go to the gym two or three times a week. And I won't – I don't put my – don't take my earphones in yeah uh so that i when i'm lifting i can think about it but also so that i can talk and chat to people because uh you know 
when you've got your your earphones and you're putting out a message, don't talk to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, no social interaction, please. So uh, I, I leave the earphones behind when I go to the gym. <laughs> no, that's cool. Yeah, uh, you mentioned the boredom piece. A saying comes to mind that I've read recently or a few times heard anyway is a uh, boredom brings creativity. When when you are bored, some yes. creativity comes along and it gives your mind that ch- chance to effectively your subconscious really start serving stuff up. I, I think is how how I that's I, view I it. find that. I mean, I, I'm always struck by the amount of ideas I get in the shower yeah. because it's the one moment where you're not listening to any music, you don't have any radio on, uh, and you know that's when your mind your mind needs more time like that. Yeah. We we talked offline. We talked about uh, one of the books I read was uh, Cal Newport, mm. which I read a few of his books. But he's some he that, he talks a lot about that, and I've tried to take that on board and give myself more time off when there's nothing going on. You know, when do the dishes. You know, yeah. go for your walk, go for your cycle, or when I'm in the gym, have nothing else going on, mm. and just let your mind wander. And that's a great way of dealing with the challenges in front of you, and um, uh, you know putting uh, letting ideas come together you know you've read a lot let them ferment and kind of mix up and yeah. something something positive will come out of that yeah brilliant uh, you mentioned uh, your your speech maybe on tuesday night and just general talks that you give i'm always fascinated as well i kind of, kind of got over my fears of doing all that when i was younger but how do you approach a speech how do you prepare for it how do you practice it you know I'm very fascinated. Everybody's a different way of doing something like that. A talk. I, I would say I'm not the world's natural, most natural uh, speech giver, but it was one of the things that when I became Lord Mayor that I wanted to use it. I was giving so many speeches that I got mm. a lot of practice in Brilliant, it, yeah. which was good. Um, what I like to do is I like to read as much as I can about a, a subject, and then I like to write down four or five bullet points, and I talk from those bu- bullet points rather than. I never read out a speech. Mm-hmm. I don't have it written down word for word. Uh, sometimes you might have a few phrases that you have in your mind, mm. um, but I, you know, I, I try to have three or four bullet points and then give those, and that's enough to talk about. You know, if you, you don't want to be speaking too long, and I don't want to write it down too early, especially when I was Lord Mayor. You'd go into a room, and if you have this, if the speech prepared in advance. I actually would walk around, talk to as many people at the event and then give the speech. Mm. I wouldn't like to give the speech first off. Right. Because you learn so much from people who are there, sure. what really is the mood of the meeting, as it were. Mm. You know, you want to speak to your audience. Yeah. I think that's a key thing that I learned is you have to speak to your audience. And if you've never met your audience, if you don't know them, um, uh, you, you can give a very much the wrong speech. Right. So... Don't walk in and give a speech. You walk around, talk to as many people, get a little feel for what's going on, and then you'll do a much better job. Uh, so you have to be prepared not to have it off by heart. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you have to be prepared to wing it a little bit. Yeah. So you have a few ideas in advance, but be prepared to change those and just talk on three or four bullet points. And uh, and also just a simple thing that somebody told me very early on, don't forget to thank the people who need thanking. You know, right. uh, it's very easy to forget about that. But big up anybody who's been responsible for whatever event you're at, yeah. because the most important thing is turning up. And, you know, mightn't be the greatest event you've ever been at, but anybody who's got up off their backside and organized something, whether it's a conference or whatever it is, big them up because they deserve it because they've done something. Mm. And uh, so I always like to speak as highly as possible of whoever it is that's organized it as well. Do, do you find it? 
that helps you relax as well in those scenarios or even going around talking to people i know in the past i've done both where i've maybe not talked to anybody and by waiting to do the speech then you're nearly getting more and more yourself worked up and when you do mingle around it kind of breaks that barrier in your own mind of oh i have to do this sort of thing uh, well, for me, I mean, you'd want to have a bit of an idea of what you're going to say, yeah. but be prepared to modify it by what you find when you talk to people. So I would, yeah, strongly advise a bit of flexibility. Have You have to have something prepared, otherwise you're going to be too nervous. Now, I still get nervous, and mm. uh, I think everybody does, but I don't, I, I think you need, it would be a bad sign if you weren't getting nervous. You're getting far too casual then. Yeah. Uh, so you need a little bit of nerves, but you don't want to be paralyzed by that. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's, they would be my few tips, but uh, there are some people like I specifically got Aon or Eardon to launch my campaign because he is such a wonderful speaker and it's just so natural for him. Right. Uh, he's just got a great command of the language and things like that. And he just, he, he, his, his, uh, I suppose his sense of justice and uh, fairness always comes out really well. He just articulates himself really well. And also Brendan Howland, as the leader of the party, he mm-hmm. was there and he gave such a great speech as well. And again, it was pretty much off the cuff. And I suppose maybe all those years in the job or that maybe that's why he gets to get the job. Yeah. Uh, and Alan Kelly was there as well. He spoke well. So it's, uh, I suppose, practice is a big thing. Yeah. I got a lot of practice and some people have an innate ability, but you can overcome, even if you're not uh, the best speaker naturally, I think you can overcome it with practice. Mm. And uh, But there are the few things for me is not to be, don't ever read it out and talk to people in the room before you give the speech okay very good thanks for going into details on that i'm and we're coming up to the hour so i won't, won't drag you along too much longer i don't want to leave it too late tonight question i'd like to ask as well flow or being kind of in the moment when do you find yourself in your it's not comfort zone but in your flow state and uh what what gets you there uh and what is it like what what, what is it when you're there even for me, it's when I would be working on something like, say, I had a lot of essays to do for mm. uh, in college, so that would be a good example of it, or preparing uh, a speech, um, or um, pu- putting ideas together. I, I, I do a lot of thinking about, you know, trying to put it all together, mm. and that would be flow for me. So that's time spent not sitting at the desk would be flow for me. So the big thing about flow is not is avoiding interruptions because. That's something Cal Newport, but lots of other people before have talked about, mm. about, you know, a 30 second phone call will disrupt your flow for 15 minutes. Yeah. And the number of people who um, answer each email as they come, and should they get a hundred, well, I suppose they get 30 emails a day. Yeah. That's 30 interruptions. And if you take 15 minutes to get back into your flow again, mm. so you get no flow at all done. Yeah. So uh, avoid interruptions. Don't have any noises or no badges on your uh, email icons whatsapp uh whatsapp is a real <laughs> killer oh god um i'm on some whatsapp groups, groups yeah they can and not only distract you with messages in 20 minutes yeah, you know i know can, your battery life goes very quickly as well and your space yeah, and everything sketch, goes yeah, dying yeah, out on yeah. that Oh, no, that's that's good to know. I end up with a couple of uh, kind of standard ones I'd like to ask. And it's funny, as I've done 40, this is my probably 45th of these I've recorded. I feel like I'm asking the same questions every time, which I am. But every answer is different. And uh, I, I love hearing the different perspectives. 
advice, uh, Andrew, during your career, is there one piece of advice that stuck out that you've been given that you've maybe used or shared forward? One of the things that I learned early on was in school was my maths teacher. I talked about Aon O'Reard on there. His father uh, was my maths teacher in school. Nice. And um, he probably wasn't the greatest at teaching and explaining things, but he taught us all how to learn for ourselves and, you know, how mm. to go and work it out for ourselves. And that was yeah. that's always been a huge advantage. So that's a big thing. That's one that springs to mind. Yeah, the thing there is, was a Churchill's statement of... I. I, I love learning, but I hate being taught. Yes, Something yes. Something like that is, uh, yeah. stands out with me. I totally agree to that one. How how would you define success for, for Andrew? Is it uh, is it being Lord Mayor? Is it... Yeah, one, I, I... Who's the guy who writes the happiness book? There's a few people who have done a lot of research into what's happiness. And mm. one thing that uh, that really struck me was the people who are happiest are people who are reasonably successful but not the most successful so i would kind of think that like you know the epitome of political career in ireland would be to be Taoiseach or president but i don't think that's probably going to be the most rewarding. it's just so overwhelming being in that position that being a minister or even being a td would be good enough for me i don't want to be the Taoiseach i don't want to i don't want to be so absorbed like family life is really important for me social life is really important for me and i and at my level in the council, I have time for all of those things. Hmm. So being reasonably successful, but not the most successful person, I think is is a is a good position to be in. Excellent, and that that matches into having a good work life balance. I would say exactly, and I think that uh, you might be able to do it for a while. So you know that year when we were Lord Mayor, we said, well, this is for one year, and hmm. I'm doing ten, twelve functions a day every day. But if if you were to stretch that out, you just couldn't do it, or I I couldn't do it, and wouldn't want to do it, mm. you know, over a five year. So if I if there was a five year directly elected mayor or something like that, you would be going at a completely different pace. Is there a, a documentary or a movie that sticks out that comes to you that uh, had an impact that you uh, could recommend? I'll have to skip on that one. I can't think of a documentary. <laughs> That's all right. The movie. Uh, mostly, it would be the reading stuff. Uh, uh, one thing that I'm very interested in, I think. Uh, a bit left to center, but I started weightlifting about a year ago and mm. uh, there's uh, Starting Strength is a website, startingstrength.com and there's a book, Starting Strength. Okay. And uh, it's just, if you, I was interested in weightlifting for a couple of years before I started doing it and I just mm. didn't know how do you start? Where do you start? And, uh, you know, what's, and there's this huge amount of uh, health benefits and mental health benefits from weightlifting. Mm. And, you know, anything you read about health, they talk about this. But how do you get started? Well, starting strength tells you how to get started. Okay. And, you know, there's kind of four basic lifts in weightlifting. The deadlift where you pick a mm -hmm. heavy bar off the ground and bring it up as far as your waist. Uh, there's the overhead where you have it, you pick it up off a raised platform so it's about chest high already and you push it over your head. There's the bench press where you're sitting on your back and you push the bar up. And then there's the squat where the bar is on your back and you hunker down and you stand back up. So that's really all weightlifting is those four lifts. And if you learn those four lifts and stick with it, but the really interesting thing about weightlifting, for the first six months or so, you can increase the weight on the bar every time you go. So every time you go is a new record for you. <laughs> and your body adapts to it and you become very strong very quickly. And mm. it's quite exhilarating. Yeah. And really good for your mental health because when you're lifting, for the weight that day is a really difficult weight for you. 
Uh, in two weeks' time, that won't be a difficult wait, but today it's really difficult. So you're really concentrated on it. So talk about mindfulness. You're not thinking about anything else. You're not distracted by anything else. You're picking up that bar and uh, trying to get it off the ground. And uh, it's it's really exhilarating, but great for mind uh, mindfulness and great for your health. Yeah. But starting strength is a great way uh, when you want to know, well, how do I get started with this? Okay. As the videos and how you do the lifts. And uh, I actually have a coach. I have an online coach. Okay. And, uh, so I video all my lifts, send it off to the coach, and he gives me a critique and tells me what to do the next day. Excellent. Yeah, no, that sounds sounds like a good recommendation. I, I do ask the meditation question, and I think we talked about it a little bit where you were mentioning digital detox and getting away from all of things and just going for a walk or whatever. I, I totally agree with what you're saying in the weightlifting being focused on what's right in front of you means you have to be there in the moment i guess because if you take your eye off any of that you're probably going to do yourself a pretty nasty injury as well um i uh, i had a bulging disc issue a few months back six months back and i had to start doing kind of deadlifting for the first time and uh yeah the sense of feeling strong after it is is a great feeling uh i think uh it's great for your mind as well as as your as your body so i i yeah. agree excellent look andrew i think we're up to uh, an hour and 6 minutes and uh time certainly flies when when we get into these flow states a little bit as well of of uh questions and answers is there a way maybe people can reach out to you, follow you on Twitter? You know, certainly with your campaign coming up, it would be great to keep track of how, how that's going. If you want to give a shout yeah, out Yeah, I think that. the best thing is is Twitter. Uh, mayor Montague. I took that name when I was the mayor of Dublin, so Mayor Montague, and I kind of like it, nice. <laughs> even though I'm no longer the mayor. Uh, it's hard to give it up. Don't so it um, up. that's my Twitter handle, and that's probably the best place. I do have a Facebook account, but I'm far more interested in my uh, in my twitter because i you know linked interesting articles and um and that's where i that's my go-to place for social media um so that's where to get me perfect i'll uh, i'll definitely include that in the uh, in the show notes as well uh when when we put it out there yeah brilliant andrew look thanks so much as i said it was really great to talk to somebody of your stature and what you've done in the community in dublin uh and i'm sure judging by your your future plans it's it's going to continue to to grow and and prosper so thanks so much for your time tonight and thanks to you and thanks to your podcast it's a great podcast loved uh, listening back uh over the last while and uh to pat lucy who put us together well done to you pat as well excellent andrew thanks so much have a good uh, rest of evening and uh, okay. hopefully you get a good night's sleep <laughs> thanks very much thanks andrew all right cheers good luck. Bye-bye. bye-bye 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 Okay, just before you go, so number one, the newsletter. I'd love if you signed up. I have over a thousand sign-ups. You'll get a note just before an episode's released every week. And if you don't like it, just unsubscribe. It's on the site. Click on the homepage and you can sign up from there. Number two, the podcast is growing. Listeners are going up and up. And I'd like to continue to do so. So would you be interested in supporting what I do? No obligations, but I've set up a Patreon page, which uh, is something a lot of podcasters are doing and other artists, I say loosely, and you can support it by donating for per an episode or, or just in general. That would help me improve marketing, improve everything I guess I'm doing and try and maybe even get to the point where I can get a guest or two on and pay them for their time so that would be great 
if you think there's some value in listening to the show maybe you'd like to instead of buying that seventh cup of coffee during the week you could donate the two or three euros to the show totally up to yourself if you've got richer by the one percent better podcast maybe you could donate and help it grow and how do you do so you just go to the support page on the website click on support you'll see the patreon image click there and it's pretty straightforward after that okay that's that what is your story what are you getting from the show if anything send me a note email me about that i would love to read out your story be it anonymous or whatever if you want your name read out and uh, that'll hopefully help others get something from it as well so that's really the the value the show is bringing you can get in touch through email it's at rob at rob of the green twitter facebook instagram at rob of the green i'm on linkedin under my own rob o'donoghue name persistence is key with this in the last few weeks i have increased numbers and that's just through marketing through pushing things a little bit more i'm going to keep doing that and get it out there more people are hearing it i'm gone over two minutes i know that if you have any ideas for guests that you'd like me to interview i'm all ears get in touch and finally thank you so much for listening and telling people about it and liking it and sharing it it's so nice to get a an email from somebody i don't know and they tell me that they've got something from the show makes it all worthwhile i'm going to keep doing it i'm enjoying it and i'm going to say good luck thank you bye